Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Okay, here we are on Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Here I am, I am Cindy Howes, the host of this here podcast on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, And we have a very special episode. Wow, Shirley Collins has led a wild, full life. The British folk singer who helped bring about the 60s folk revival in Great Britain is on Basic Folk, talking about her new album Heart's Ease and her entire extraordinary career. Shirley also talks about her childhood, which occurred during World War II, and started her love and connection with traditional folk songs. Her grandparents would sing to her and her sister Dolly during air raids to try to keep the girls calm. This watershed moment would define her love of sharing these songs and how it feels for Shirley to sing. She talks about her late sister Dolly, a brilliant musical arranger and frequent collaborator, and how her compositions matched up perfectly with Shirley's singing. Shirley was a part of the historical Alan Lomax Southern Journey recordings, where she assisted the folklorist in collecting recordings of traditional folk songs in the American South. A lot of those songs were familiar to Shirley as they came over to America from England hundreds of years ago. She talks about the musicians she met along the way, including Mississippi Fred McDowell. After she returned, she sang and recorded music from about 1955 to 1979 and then stopped when she went through a terribly traumatic event and developed dysphonia. Recently, Shirley has returned to making albums starting in 2016 with Lodestar and now with her latest just released. She is generous with her answers and is good-natured about my ridiculous questions. Also, very fun lightning round. I can't wait to have Shirley on again. We're going to check out a song from her new album. This is Locked in Ice. We'll check out this song and then get to our conversation with the great Shirley Collins on Basic Folk. In the year of 1831, I sailed towards the setting sun Bringing food and fuel and guns For the Hudson Bay Company From Vancouver to the northwest shore Like I'd done these fifteen years or more Little did I know what lay in store On the icy Beaufort Sea Trading cargo for the finest furs Trapped by Eskimos and voyagers It was early winter came that year Through closing pack ice I did steer Just a narrow patch of sea lay clear Now I was 
was homeward bound But as I crossed the Beaufort Sea The pack ice it closed in on me It was a fearful guarantee That I'd be run aground To the barrow then the crew did go To shelter from the wind and snow Locked in ice Half a hundred years Drifting with the flow Where the ice goes, I go Shirley Collins, thank you so much for talking to me. This is so exciting. Thanks for having me. That's wonderful. (laughs) Um, I was wondering if we could talk um, start talking with uh, about your neighborhood that you grew up in, in Hastings. Um, if you could describe your neighborhood growing up and what was it like for you and your sister? Like, did you um, play outdoors with other neighborhood children or were you indoor children? What was going on? Right. Well, I grew up in Hastings in East Sussex, which was originally a fishing village um, and there still was an old fishing part of town when when I was born. Um, It's a small town on the Sussex coast and yes, Dolly and I were born, I was born before the war, no, just after the war. No, when was I born? I was born 1935, so the the war had just broken out. No, I was four years old, sorry. (laughs) I was four years old when the Second World War broke out. I had an older sister, Dolly, two years older than me. As we as we sort of grew to be bigger children, we had been bombed out of one house and had to move in with Aunt Grace up in a village a little way outside Hastings. And yes, we were outside all the time, um, but the children were in those days. You know, you just came home from school and mum would say, off you go then, and you'd you know go straight outside. You'd either play in the street outside because there were no cars, it was all very quiet, or else we'd just walk a couple of streets away and hop over a stile into fields and just go walking, spend all day out, you know, take a picnic with us in Grandad's old army haversack, a couple of boiled eggs and a couple of slices of bread. And uh, we took a neighbourhood dog with us, Jim, who was a a lovely old mongrel, sort of liver coloured and splashes and very ugly, but the most affectionate dog. And he just loved walking with us and we loved having him. So we were fortunate in that regard that we spent most of our time outdoors. Um, I read in a couple of different places that... um this incredible story of you and your sister Dolly when you were young girls during the war, um, your grandparents would sing old folk songs to you during air raids to help keep you calm. And I'm wondering what effect that had and how did that early act shape your relationship to music and maybe how you sing a song? Well, I think it was absolutely crucial and I just feel so fortunate that it happened that way. Yes, we slept in an air raid shelter, which was a big steel table um, with mesh sides and you'd sleep, you know, you'd put your your blankets in there and your pillows and uh, Granny and Grandad sang to us during air raids and they kept us calm and they kept us feeling secure and the songs they sang, or Grandad especially, 
I later learned were folk songs, um, whereas Granny sang songs from the music hall because she liked music hall songs better. They were livelier, except she also had some very mournful Edwardian songs as well, where loads of people died. <laughs> and <laughs> um, But so, yes, it was security, listening to, to, the grand, to our grandparents sing, and we loved them so much anyway. Um, it was just, you know, in spite of it being wartime, it was just mm. the most um, secure feeling, and, and that stayed with me. And this, the way they sang stayed with me, you know, just very straightforward. Um, mm. No adornment, no dramatics, you know, just sang the song, told the story, and that was it. Your family had a deep love of traditional British folk songs. How did the way they approached or treated music in your house create a love of England for you? Well, this is interesting. I mean, partly during the time Dolly and I were children and growing up, on Sunday at dinner time, um, there would be a program on the radio, on the BBC radio called Family Favourites. And one of the most requested tunes was Greensleeves, which was arranged by Vaughan Williams and was... I mean, Henry VIII claimed to have written it, which, whether he did or not, we don't know. But, um, you know, we, as, as Joe says, he did. <laughs> royalties for royalty. <laughs> um, and so that the Englishness of that was, was always there, always present. And, I mean, we love to sing Christmas carols at Christmas. Um, you know, we'd start practising at the end of October and just go on all through November until Christmas came. But there was just always, always that sort of singing and also we sang hymns at school as well. We had a, every morning there was an assembly um, in our girls' grammar school where we would sing a couple of hymns. And and they were always, <laughs> we were just surrounded by this English sound, this English music, which was great, you know, because it obviously soaked in very deeply into me. Um, you love singing these old folk songs about quote-unquote ordinary people, like the rural poor that have uh, been sung for generations. Can you talk about the connection to the past that occurs when you sing these ancient songs, and what commonalities can you feel? Well, I mean, I came from a working-class background anyway. My granddad was a gardener. My father, um, when he wasn't in the army during the war, was a milk roundsman from a local farm. And the songs, they just sounded like, I mean, right through my life, these songs have sounded like the sort of people, the sort of family that I came from, the sort of background that I had. But what I always thought was so remarkable was what they sang, what they sang about. They sang about everything, you know, love and death and murder and hardship and occasionally things like ghosts and spirits, but... Not the not the sort of <laughs> the songs about fairies and elves and woodland stuff that a lot of the 1960s folk singers sort of took up, you know, the um, <laughs> the Fairport Convention and all. Um, lovely songs, but they just didn't resonate with me at all. They just didn't seem to be any part of my life at all. So I always had at the background that these the songs came from these people who were, you know, downtrodden because the British peasants, as they were called right up to the end of the 19th century, were, you know, despised and exploited. And yet they managed somehow to work their lives, to work the land, 
and just carry these marvellous songs on with them. You know, not everybody, of course, not everybody sang, but the people who did sing just, you know, just had this incredible memory for songs, some of which go back centuries. And that fascinates Mm. me, the length of time those songs have survived just on the mouths of people, ordinary people. It's it's miraculous. Yeah. Um, I have a couple questions about the Lomax trip. You met Al Lomax in the British folk scene in London in the 1950s. Uh, you were partners for a while in your 20s, and you assisted him in 1959 on the Southern Journey song collecting trip where you um, collected music in the Deep South from people like notably Mississippi Fred McDowell. And you've talked about this um, quite a bit, but um, how did how did this trip affect your musical identity as a, a young person um, from England who had such a deep love of, of British folk music going over to America for the first time and hearing all these all these songs? that it seemed like they sounded kind of familiar to you. Well, a lot of them were um, from the the mountain people of, you know, Virginia and the Carolinas and from Arkansas. They were singing ballads and songs that um, the early settlers had taken over with them to the States. Uh, What is remarkable, I think, is that those songs survived, you know, the journey of several thousand miles from from the British Isles over to America Mm -hmm. and then across the continent as well. Um, and they, but they were also singing the same the same songs that we were singing at home. It's slightly varied, of course, because with a journey that long and being sung by so many different people all the time, you know, the songs change each time somebody new sings that song. That song slightly changes. Um, so I was utterly fascinated to hear of these changes um, and the tune. Was it the the lyrics that were changing? No, it was it was the lyrics. I mean, there's some marvellous examples of how words um, change as well. And and place names, of course. I mean, the most obvious one really is the Oxford, the um, Oxford girl, which is in America called the the Knoxville girl. Yes, in, in America, she's the Knoxville girl in most versions. But originally in England, it was the Oxford girl. But that wasn't mm, a familiar okay. name. But Knoxville, you know, obviously was. The tunes did alter in the mountains as well. Um, in fascinating ways, they they became, they became sharper and a bit shriller in the style of singing. And you don't recognise many of the tunes. The, the, the tunes were, it seemed to me, the least memorable part of it, um, that the settlers remembered. They remembered the words, um, but then the tunes sort of got changed and adapted as they went along. And yet several of the fiddle tunes um, that went across with the settlers as well, they did survive um, more or less intact as well. Fascinating. And, I mean, Mm. what I did love to hear was stories about, um, for instance, people saying, um, my granddaddy had this fiddle and his his ancestors brought it over and they had to hide it in a wood um, to keep it safe from the jayhawkers who might come along and steal it. And, but they were proud of the fact that there was a 200-year-old fiddle, at least, that they believed came from the British Isles with one, with one of their early relatives. And there was a sort mm. of pride in it, and I understood that, and a pride in the songs as well. There has been a lot of discussion in the U.S. right now and um, around the world about the erasure of 
black people's contributions to American music. And uh, it got me thinking about your unique perspective um, in that it seems about this because it seems like you kind of got a front row seat to um, the evolution of American folk music across the board. How did that trip give you a sense of the roots and the evolution of American music? Well, to go back with you saying that you think they've been erased from the story of American music, I don't see that. Um, from my perspective, the the... the the American Africans were people who started a lot of this music. You know, it came from Africa, it came from America, from America, it came from slavery. It's never been not acknowledged, has it? I mean, the acknowledgement must be there that this music belongs to those people, and that's where it came from. As you know, there's almost not quite separate. Musics, but I mean, you can tell of the white um, music from the mountains. You know, you know that specifically from from the British Isles. Um, but the the American African music comes from Africa, and we heard so much of that on the nineteen fifty nine trip. You know, echoes of of drumming and whistle playing, fife playing, dancing that was purely African. You know, you couldn't mm. miss it. And the blues, of course, you know, I mean, who else is playing the blues but, you know, mostly black musicians. And then the white people mm. took it up because it was such marvellous music. But I don't think, I can't, you can't say that that music was ignored, can you? Um, because, because we know where it came from. On this podcast, I've spoken to a lot of um, young black folk singers who felt as though they were imposters when wanting to play this uh, traditional folk music um, because it didn't seem, because a lot of folk music spaces in America are uh, white spaces, you know, and they had to go back, you know, years and years to try to, to try to find any indication that um, black people had had a role in folk music. I think Rhiannon Giddens is doing a really good job of trying to change the narrative. I think for the most part, a lot of folk spaces in this in this country are white spaces, and it's... Uh... That's very sad. And, you know, with my experience of when I was in the States, it just didn't seem to be the case. And, I mean, but then I was fortunate to sort of be there at the recording of so much of this fabulous black music from the Mississippi musicians and singers for a start, you know, that my my concept of it is different from yours because mm. I knew where this music came from and how long it had been settled there as well. And it's 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 baffling that that they would feel that way because they must know that the music is theirs yeah we got to tell them yes <laughs> absolutely yeah. yeah yeah um thank you that for for your perspective on that when you um returned from the trip with Lomax, 
you decided to devote yourself to preserving traditional British folk songs. So you and Dolly recorded some remarkable music in that time, including using some unique instrumentation. And I don't know if I'm going to say the names of these instruments correct, so you can correct me. The um, sackbutts, viols, crumhorns, and rebecks. I'm wondering, like, what kind of philosophy did you and Dolly hold when it came to the arrangements for these songs? And how did you see the arrangements influencing those around you? Well, um, Dolly and I always loved early music as well, um, because one of our uncles, Uncle Fred, who was a a writer as well as a guest meter reader, loved early music and he played Monteverdi to us when we were teenagers and I loved it straight away and always I mean just just it just you know felt like the right music and because I knew of the age of many of the songs I mean they're not always you know hundred years of you know two or three or four hundred years old some of them are and those songs you know would be perfectly suited to be accompanied by these old instruments and I love them as well because there's a roughness to them you know they're not absolutely precise and and smooth and beautiful they have that sort of rough charm to them that you know that uh, this suits the song so well and uh, so that was that was quite easy for Dolly to write those arrangements for those instruments Um, and later I mean we 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 did sort of vary it Um, you know we started off with I mean fortunately when I first got back to England I I, I was playing a five string banjo you know and Alan had bought me a dulcimer in North Carolina made from cherry wood that I just treasured and so I was trying to play um, English songs accompanied by five string banjo and the way I played it was nothing like the American way of playing it was a very English chiming sort of way and that was the best I could <laughs> do but it, so it was wonderful to be able to enhance the songs further um, with Dolly's arrangements and I always think the songs are so wonderful as well you know and so remarkable that they've survived all that time that they really deserve the best accompaniments you can give them And I think Dolly was the right person because she understood them so well and understood Mm. the Englishness of them. She sounds like she was a real genius. Yes, yes. (laughs) You sang and recorded music from 1955 to 1979, and then you stopped when you went through a terribly traumatic event and developed dysphonia. How did you feel about your singing voice up to that point, and what has been the evolution of your relationship to your voice? Um, Well, my voice was always the only voice I could sing with. Um, I didn't have to take singing lessons or try to copy anybody. Um, That was the voice I I had, and I always felt it was just right for the songs, and to sing them with any other voice wouldn't be right for me at all. So I I was perfectly sort of happy with it, although... A lot of people didn't like the, my voice, you know, they thought it was too plain and too unadorned. Um, but I, you get used to criticism, you know, you you can't change what you do if you believe in it as firmly as I did, you know, you just accept the criticism and let it go. Um, but of course, once I started singing again, <laughs> after such a great many years layoff, then I did have to start sort of thinking about 
about you know how different my voice was, how it had gone down a register or more, mm. and um, had to put up with people saying, <laughs> "She sounds like Tom Waits." <laughs> And so one person said, "Oh, the bitch can't sing." <laughs> mm. But you just you just swallow it, you know, because yeah, perhaps she can't sing, but she knows she knows her songs and she knows you know how they should be treated. So um, mm -hmm. you know, I I I've, I mean, I hope it doesn't sound too vain, but I've always had an absolute trust in the way I sing the songs I know I understand the songs so well and I love them so much and all I can do is sing them in this you know the best way possible for me but I can't dress it up any more than that I don't think you have to <laughs> when you were not singing publicly for nearly 40 years how did you stay connected to music um, what was your relationship to the songs and what kind of responsibility did you feel to the songs anymore? Well, during those times, I mean, I, I did have to, because I had two children to bring up, so I had to take jobs um, for, for quite a few years. Uh, and then towards the end of that time, when I was able to retire from, you know, paid work, I started, I mean, the songs were always in my head all the time anyway. Um, you know, they're just rolling around my brain, <laughs> probably even as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the songs were always, you know, I, I always had a song sort of going through my mind and I was thinking about them a lot. I was, because, you know, it's it's just been a total, it's an obsession is the wrong word, you know, but a total commitment, let's say, to them. Mm. Um, and then I started to want to write about it, try to tell people about the songs. And um, because I had, you know, I'd, I'd got all of the Lomax field recordings and I'd got access to the English field recordings that were made by the BBC, mostly in the 1950s. Um, and I was able to put programmes together of, um, well, I wrote I wrote um, a book about America over the water, um, the time there, and I wrote a show, a talk about it, an illustrated talk, and I wrote talks about English gypsy singers, about Southern English singers, um, about Sussex singers, and and did and was used again then to going back on stage, but as a speaker rather than a singer, mm. and so I was still in total, you know, totally connected to the the material. And it was a lovely way to be able to do it because, you know, <laughs> I'm still, I was just, just still totally fascinated by it. And it was one way of getting back on stage and talking to people about it oh, and then playing so them samples of the music. And when it came to raising your children, how did you keep music alive in the house? What were you playing for them and what is their connection to music? Well, this is strange. Um, my, we were also very keen on reading. Um, I read to the children a lot, and uh, they 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 heard me sing. They heard the singing when they were young, so they knew all about that. But um, once I stopped singing, I th I think I think there was a sort of lapse at that point, um, and they sort of went their own way. Polly became interested in in English literature. And she she went to Oxford University and studied there for four years. And she um, is a writer. My son likes what I do, but don't think he fully understands it. <laughs> uh, cause, and he, he works as um, 
manager for a, a British Asian group called Asian Dub Foundation. And he works with On You Sound as well, Adrian Sherwood, who you may or may not have heard of, probably not because it's sort of English-based. So he's, he manages a, a, a big band as well. Hmm. Um, so what what's nice, I think, is that they did both decide what they wanted to do themselves. You know, they weren't... Um, I didn't sort of hornswoggle them, if there's such a word, into, you know, into making... <laughs> they had to follow what mum did. No, I let them, you know, go their own way as because I'd always gone my own way and I just... I wanted that for my children as well, for them to live their own lives. Uh, I'm interested in how you feel about... how you will feel about this question. You might not like it, but uh, I feel like your your choice to stop singing in the late 70s was very a very kind act of self-care how did you look at that decision and now do you reflect on it any differently as opposed to when you when you made the choice you've got put your finger on it um i think you're right i think I mean, it was protecting myself anyway, because I knew if I continued to sing, I would just completely demolish myself because I wasn't able to sing, and that would have been disastrous, and then I would have backed away and been terrified of ever opening my mouth to sing again. So, yeah, you might well be right. It was a, you know, it was a withdrawal, and perhaps it was a protective thing. I didn't actually quite see it like that at the time. I just felt of it as a bit of a loss. But, you know, in retrospect, it was the right thing to do. And I've come back, um, not necessarily stronger, but just as committed to the music. And uh, I'm proud of myself, too. <laughs> yeah, you should be. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the way that you recorded uh, Lodestar, your first album in 38 years, this was back in 2016, in talking about self-care, like while on the subject of self-care, you approached the recording of this record, I think, very carefully um, for your own emotional well-being and uh, way to way to go for, for doing that. You recorded it at home with musicians who knew your story and her, who were friends as opposed to just going into a studio. Why was that important to you and how do you think that environment helped the emotional process of making music again for you? Well, I, I just couldn't risk going into a studio. I, I didn't want to face any sort of criticism or, or scorn or somebody saying, you know, what's she doing you know, thinking she can sing. But in my own cottage, I knew I, you know, with the support I had from people like Ian Keary here, who is the arranger of all the songs on the albums. Um, I mean, it was we could just take it at our absolutely own pace. Everybody knew that I was, you know, anxious about trying to sing again. Everybody was patient. Um, we just took it slowly and built it slowly and... I had the songs that I wanted to sing on it, you know, that I'd wanted to sing for ages and finally could. And it was, I mean, it was a lovely experience in many ways. I mean, I was still anxious from t at times and um, nervous at times and felt I, I just wasn't doing the songs justice. But we sort of won through and it was, 
<laughs> it was great fun to do. Um, I, I live in a, a very small cottage on a very narrow street and there's always kids coming down on skateboards and, and kids coming home from school and and the trains rumbling past <laughs> a couple of hundred yards away and we just had to keep stopping and then starting again but it was all light-hearted and everybody was so patient with me and uh, supportive and it was it was fun but I have to say that going into a studio was better because I'd got my confidence back by then or more of it and um mm just to feel the security of knowing that every bit of recording was done by, you know, a very good sound recordist. And I'd still got all my friends around me anyway, because they're the same musicians on Heart's Ease that they were on Lodestyle. Um, and so it was the right thing to do, the right way to do it. And God bless Domino, they were patient um, with the, the, the recording of, um, of Lodestar, the first one. And then you know, picked up the option to do a second one, which is just, just incredible. You know, I just feel I feel so fortunate in the in the record company I'm with for a start, because they don't pester me at all. They just let me get on with it at my own pace. And I'm, you know, with the people like Ian Carey here, who is a dear friend and um, a long time friend as well, and a great musician, great arranger. You know, I think the work he's done on, on. Heart Seas particularly, it's really quite beautiful. So on the new album, Heart's Ease, you were talking about uh, gaining your confidence. Um, where or where, and how do you think that confidence comes through on the record? <laughs> You've got me stumped again. I mean, it's, it's partly, I think, the confidence is there because um, following... Lodestar. We did lots, quite a few concerts in big concert halls, so I had to sort of, um, you know, make sure I felt confident enough to go on a big stage and sing. So having that experience behind me again as well, um, the the thing I, <laughs> sorry, the thing I know about myself is that I understand these songs and I think I can sing them really well because of that understanding and because I don't feel they need dramatising or dressing up or you know you don't have to bring yourself into it much you're just there as a, as a sort of you know, person who through whom the songs come um, I always try to think of you know when I'm singing for instance whatever song and I know I've heard it sung by a traditional singer you know from a field recording then I always remember that person um, and try to I don't sort of try to channel them but I'm always aware that that they're there in the song and that I owe them this great debt of 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 their music um, and, and it, just, it just sounds so silly really but all I know is that I understand these songs mm. Better than anybody else. <laughs> what I'm hearing is that you are extraordinary at inhibiting songs that you find very ordinary. Do I find them ordinary? Do you? No. I no? find them extraordinary. I mean, I, I, I just marvel that these songs have survived at all, you know, and that they've come down to us. I mean, often, you know, through hundreds of years sometimes, um, some just a couple of hundred years old, some longer. But with them comes the feeling of the people 
of my class in England, the rural labouring classes, and I just feel I'm speaking and singing for them, and I think they need honouring, mm. and I think their music deserves to be heard and uh, arranged as beautifully as it possibly can be. You know, it's 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 great music. The songs are just so beautiful, some of them. Um, and they they tell us so much of of you know humanity really, and just what more do you need? Um, your love of discovery and curiosity where where do you see that in yourself, and where do you think those attributes came from? Grandparents. I think it is as simple as that. That was the grounding. If they hadn't sung to us during the war. I don't think I would have had the same feeling for the music as I have. Mm. I mean, it, it, that may be nonsense, but I hark back to those times and to listen to Grandad in particular sing, and then hearing later hearing field recordings of other people of Grandad's age who sounded like Grandad. You know, um, th there was always that feeling. Yes, that that's that's the right. That's the right feeling in the song. That's the right sound of the song. Those are the right words. That's the right melody. Um, you know, it, it was just... I think it, it, it is as basic as that, that there's some spirit in Grandad, I think, that... And this might sound very silly to you, but I think there's an inherited folk memory... And I think I've got that, and I think I, I think Grandad had it, and I think that that's the strength of my singing, that I know I can go back truthfully, you know, into the minds of people from my background, my class, um, you know, through through quite a few hundred years, and do them justice. So. Yeah, I don't think that's silly. I think that's awesome. Oh, good. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, the process of selecting the songs on the new album sounds fascinating. Um, you say you have quite the memory for songs, and you said songs were just jumping out to you and demanding to be sung. And I imagine that you have a lot of songs in your head. Um, what was the feeling when narrowing down the choices? I I would probably be overwhelmed and extremely anxious, um, but what did it look like for you? Well, I was pretty happy with the choices. I mean, once once you've got them, I mean, you, I, I, I'm sort of quite realistic. I know I have to limit the songs, um, you know, from for one album. But I particularly wanted to sing The Merry Golden Tree because that was Almeida Riddle. Um, from Timbo in Arkansas and I loved her so much when I met her in 1959 um, but she was such a great singer and some of her songs are really really tricky tunes and you wouldn't want to try and sing one of Almeida's really great songs because only Almeida could sing them you wouldn't want mm. anybody else to, to try how old was she, how old was she when you met her she must have been in her 60s like looking back at a picture of her in her sixties, it's like that is she looked older than sixty for sure. Well, yes, I think you know mountain life quite mm -hmm. tough. Um, and she was working because uh, when I got back to England after then, we we corresponded. I have a letter of hers, um, 
and she had got a new job and that was nursing an older lady um she was she was a carer mm. and uh so i mean but i i loved almeida and i really wanted to sing um one of her songs and i suggested the merry golden tree to ian and he just came through with this um arrangement that i th- yes that's right ian you've got it you've done it you know so let <laughs> let's sing that and uh it just just you know took off from there. I mean, it is difficult knowing the songs to sing, but I, there were several people I wanted to um, remember. You know, people like Harry Upton, who sang um, the Shepherd in Sussex, who sang Kennedy I.O. And it, it's always important to me to make sure that I mention the person that I learned it from. You know, that's absolutely essential for me. And... <laughs> I the songs just come in, you know, and they as you say, sing me, sing me. And and this is how, I mean, seriously, that's how they happen. Because, I mean, how else would you arrive at a list like this and, and think, you know. <laughs> it's cosmic. You could just open a book and say, yeah, I'll do that and that and that and that and that. But no, that's not the way to do it. <laughs> just Just all the songs I've got in my head, you know, they just want to come out from time to time. <laughs> Can you talk about Locked in Ice? Um, That's a song written by your nephew. What does that song mean to you, and how did you make it your own? Well, I wanted to do a a song of Buzz's because he had died. He committed suicide a few years back. Um, This was after my sister Dolly had died, and it was such a tragedy. Um, And I, I... he he'd made a couple of albums, and this song, uh, which he called the Beichimo, it's a it's a true story about this ship. It was built in 1935 and worked for the Hudson Bay Company, and he wrote a song about that how the ship became finally sort of locked in ice and lost. It became a ghost ship up in the Arctic, and he sang it in a quite rocky way. He he is quite hard driving song and I loved it but I knew I couldn't sing it like that but there was so much in this song that I was haunted by um, and I had to slow it right down and in fact we had tried to record it for Lodestar but we just couldn't come up with the right way to do it um, the, the arrangement that um, was it was just too too big and it was too sort of in a way a little bit pretentious and it just wasn't working so i abandoned it for for lodestar but then still really wanted to do it um as a you know to remember buzz collins as well um but i had to so we slowed it right down ian came up again with this very spare arrangement which you know just it sort of gives me the chills when i think of it now it just you know sets this ship out on the arctic so clearly and so painfully almost but I had to set it a hundred years earlier because I don't like things that are more modern I, and too in, modern in order to, it, well, yes I set it a um, hundred years earlier and it, that worked for me I, I couldn't I just couldn't visualize this as a as a, a steamship, you know, I saw it as a as a sailing ship, and um, I had I just I, I hope Buzz would forgive me, but I had to, so I slowed it right down and and turned it into this um, this lonesome, this lonely ship, you know, because in a way I suppose to be romantic, I felt that I'd been that little lost ship for, uh, you know, quite a few years myself, 
Um, yeah. But then I'm, you know, I'm not still wandering around the Arctic. I'm, <laughs> I'm making you're records. <laughs> yeah, you're right in a studio. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I found this quote from you talking about the pain that you've been through in your life and what's what it's helped you accomplish. You said, now I think I can completely inhabit the songs because what I've been through. And how does really realizing that make you feel about the pain you've endured? And how have you gotten to a place where you can use your pain? But partly because I don't feel the pain anymore. I mean, you know, it, was, it's, it all seems so long ago now. Um, and partly because... If you don't overcome that feeling, I mean, I, I can use the the pain, the pathos in the songs, but that means that somebody else has won. Whereas if I, you know, can overcome it and and live through, you know, live life now, then the other person hasn't won. I've I'm the winner, you know, um, and it was worth going through because <laughs> because I wouldn't be here now if I hadn't. You know who knows who knows where I'd be now. I might just, um, you know, sort of be living. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, life's good, um, and I'm I'm so happy to you know to be able to make these new albums. Um, I want to do one more thing before I let you go. This is called the lightning round. Oh, <laughs> and I'm going to ask you some very fun, light-hearted questions. Okay, you ready? Yep. <laughs> okay. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Sweet England. Do you like dogs or cats or something else? I like birds. What kind of birds? Wild birds. I mean, robins and sparrows and thrushes, all the songbirds. Oh. I like them. Um, and cats kill the birds, so I'm not very fond of cats. We had a pet tortoise when I was two. It was called Foo. F-O-U, because it was supposed to be Chinese. <laughs> and oh. I still, I can still remember sitting in the back garden of the house that we lived in before it was bombed, watching foo crawl and eat lettuce. And I must have been about two years old. Wow. Yeah. That's a very early memory. It is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do you take your... Do you drink coffee? Yes. How do you take your coffee? With honey and cream. Wow. Mm. Okay. What is your favorite junk food? Pizza with prawns and chicken. Prawns. Oof. That's not junk, but that's the junkiest I get. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty good though. Okay. Um, first album that you bought with your own money? I bought a not an album. It was a little seven-inch disc of Jean Ritchie singing four of her Kentucky songs. That was the first uh, record I bought in 1960-something. That's perfect. Because I loved her singing. What was your first concert? (laughs) 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 Well, if you can call it a concert, it was um, this... The Moscow State Ensemble singing folk songs with and Cossack dances. They came to Hastings to the right what right right 
the White Rock Pavilion and they sang and danced because my mother was very keen on Russians. Um, that was the very first concert, but yeah, so that was the first concert I ever went to. I must have been about 12. And all the, I remember all the women very, very, very highly made up. You could almost smell it from the makeup from the back of the hall. But we were just thrilled by the Cossack dancers. Wow. I hear you're an avid reader. What was the last book you read? But the last book I'm, I'm, I'm reading, um, it was a book called Monkey, written by Brian Catling. Um, it's a ghost story, and it's a book he dedicated to me. Um, it's just newly out. Um, but otherwise, I, I just read, I, I'm just reading, you know, two, three books a week. I just read in bed at wow. night and um, just get through loads of books. My favourite author is Kate Atkinson, English writer of um, sort of semi-thrillers. But uh, no, I just read, <laughs> just read loads, you know. I've got sort of wow. Catholic tastes. <laughs> Would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? Fly or be invisible? Oh, I mm -hmm. think I've done invisible. I think I'd rather fly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? The Beatles. Okay, last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? It is the South Downs, which are just in my neighborhood. Great sweeps of green countryside, mm. moving towards the sea, with great chalk white cliffs, and that's my favourite place in the world, and to me the most beautiful, yes. Although I know there are places more beautiful, but it's like people, isn't it? You know, some people are beautiful, you know they are, but other people you love more. Mm. So I love, I love the South Downs. Is that in the documentary? Uh, yeah, I think so. Some of it is, yes. Not there's not some the beautiful. Very, yeah, it's, it's, it's lovely green countryside. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool documentary. Oh, thank you. By the way, <laughs> good rock star. All right, that's it. You have finished the lightning round, Shirley Collins. That congratulations. Was fun. <laughs> yeah, you liked it. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Made me think that. I, yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to you, and I hope that we get to do it again. Oh, Cindy, I do hope so, perhaps with the next album. <laughs> yeah, no, just, maybe in person. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. But, but uh, listen, it's yeah. been really, you've made me think, which is <laughs> very good for me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Basic Folk This Week, produced by Laura McCarthy, who also offers her social media assistance. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople does our music. Basic Folk is pleased to be on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find this podcast anywhere that you listen, as well as my website, cindyhouse.net. I am the host of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend uh, and all of your family members, even the ones that maybe you don't get along with, because maybe it'll help bridge a gap uh, of conversation and you can start getting along again. And, uh, you know, it, it basically this podcast could change your life. All right. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening again. Okay, bye.